Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. It is the Friday of school vacation week. It is not about Jay's topic or Jay. In fact, if you were to find Jay 19 years ago from today, you would have to look for him up because he would have been encircling the Earth as an astronaut. And he made actually 256 times around the Earth, which is 6.3 million miles, totaling 381 hours in space. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> we, he was on the NeuroLab mission and learned a lot about the physiology of the body while he was there. Jay went to Cornell. He was an electrical engineer as an undergrad. He got his MD degree at Cornell Medical uh, School, and he stayed on for an internship in New York City, and then came up here for his residency at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. He then went to UT Southwestern, where he joined the faculty and was both in the Department of Medicine, and he was at the UT Southwestern, UT Arlington Joint Program in Biomedical Engineering. He also was in the Air Force Reserve as a flight surgeon. He also became an astronaut, and as I mentioned to you, in 1998, he was in that flight. He had joined us in 1995, so this actually occurred while Jay was a member of our faculty here at Dartmouth. Uh, on that flight, as I mentioned, he was a payload specialist, uh, and he has brought to that event and now accumulated in his career over 30 years of research and clinical experience in aerospace and undersea investigations, mainly on physiology and medicine. He directs a very productive research lab. He's among our most prodigious research writers and grant recipients in our department. Um, he founded and directs the Hyperbaric Medicine Clinical Program, about which we will hear more today, and he is the section chief of that division. He's board certified in internal medicine, aerospace medicine, and undersea and hyperbaric medicine. We're in for a real thrill. Those who are away this week are going to miss this, and hopefully we'll get them to watch it archived. Jay, thanks for doing this today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. And yes, this is was uh, this is the 19th anniversary of NeuroLab going on right now. Well, thanks for inviting me uh, here. What I was going to talk about is uh, emerging applications for hyperbaric oxygen. We're going to talk about some of the new things that we're using uh, hyperbaric oxygen for. We'll also review some of the old ones uh, as well. And uh, since this is grand rounds, we should start off with a case. So we have a case, a 42-year-old man with a history of ulcerative colitis is admitted to the hospital because of frequent uh, bloody diarrhea, approximately 15 bowel movements a day, lower abdominal pain, and persistent ulcerative colitis symptoms despite mesalamine treatment. So he's been treated, but it's not, not working out for him. His flexible sigmoidoscopy shows extensive severe colitis throughout the examined colon, and his CRP is 127. So he's admitted. He has moderately uh, severe ulcerative colitis, a flare, and he's given IV hydrocortisone. And so the question is, would hyperbaric oxygen be an additional uh, reasonable treatment? So what I'm going to go through is, well, what is hyperbaric oxygen? How does it work? 
And what are some of the emerging indications for HBO? And would you, uh, would you consider um, hyperbaric oxygen for something like ulcerative colitis? And do we need to dim the lights at all, or are we good? Yeah. Room, here we go, medium. There you go. <laughs> so um, just by way of introduction, so you know, right now in this room we have one atmosphere of pressure. It's from the, uh, the gravity is pulling the atmosphere down around us, and that creates one atmosphere of pressure. And then if you imagine we, uh, we took a tube and started to replace all the air in here with oxygen, then we would be in one atmosphere of air. And then if we sealed this room up and started to pump this room up with more oxygen, let's say put another atmosphere of pressure in here, then we'd be at two atmospheres absolute of oxygen. And if we put in yet another atmosphere, we'd be at three atmospheres absolute of oxygen. And that would be hyperbaric oxygen, be oxygen under pressure, as if we just took this room and pressurized it with oxygen. That would be hyperbaric oxygen. Now, we could do it another way, too. If we took this room and instead of filling it with oxygen, we just left air in here and put another atmosphere of air in to take us to two atmospheres absolute of air, and then maybe another atmosphere to be at three atmospheres absolute of air, and then breathe oxygen through a mask, that would be the same thing as if we filled this room with oxygen and pressurized it to three atmospheres. So either one of those is hyperbaric oxygen, either filling this room with oxygen and pressurizing it or pressurizing the room with air and breathing oxygen through a mask. So the clinical use of uh, hyperbaric oxygen really goes back uh, to Dr. Borma, who was a, a Dutch uh, surgeon. And this is in the 50s. And back then, if you wanted to operate on someone who had uh, congenital heart disease, you just had to be fast. Because the amount of time you had was the amount of time that the heart could be stopped. So he went to the Royal Dutch Navy, uh, which had the chamber. So this is a, a hyperbaric chamber, which had the people inside, which you could pressurize with air. So he went to the Royal Dutch Navy to do an experiment to see if he could find a way to extend operative time. And so what they did is they put a pig in the chamber breathing oxygen under pressure. So they pressurized the chamber to three atmospheres with air and then had the pig breathing oxygen. So the pig's getting hyperbaric oxygen. Then they re removed red cells in increments but returned the plasma to the pig. So they took blood out, kept the red cells, put the plasma back in and did that repeatedly until the pig had a hematocrit of essentially zero. And so at three atmospheres absolute of oxygen, that's what the three ATA is, the hemoglobin concentration could be lowered to essentially zero and the pig was fine. There were no uh, changes on the electrocardiogram, no changes on the EEG. Uh, basically what is happening is the pig is meeting all of its requirements for oxygen just off the oxygen that's dissolved in plasma. So there was no need for hemoglobin at all. So he wrote a paper about this called Life Without Blood. And actually, they went on to create hyperbaric operating rooms. There was a hyperbaric operating room in Amsterdam. And they also had them here across the United States in New York, Boston, and Los Angeles, um, which only lasted, of course, until cardiopulmonary bypass came along, uh, which was a little more effective way of uh, doing those sort of uh, procedures. But anyway, what Bortema showed that by using hyperbaric oxygen, you could greatly increase the amount of oxygen that was dissolved in the body. And uh, another uh, big force between understanding hyperbaric oxygen has been the US uh, Navy. 
Uh, this video here is from the 60s, but actually the first uh, use of uh, um, oxygen for uh, stealth diving purposes started back in the, in the 40s during World War II. But uh, we'll just let uh, this person explain. This morning, gentlemen, we're going to take up what was going to the teams of Emerson Cuba Ray. This means that it is a self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. This rig is used any type of clandestine or sneak attack operation. It is desirable for this use because of the fact that there are no bubbles coming out of this rig when it is submerged. Let me have you step up here, sir. We'll slip you into it. So no bubbles. Few jobs in the Navy require more mature judgments to be made almost instantaneously. In a combat zone, these decisions can mean the difference between the success and failure of a mission. So what they're doing is that in order to allow this uh, stealth operations, they're breathing oxygen, pure 100% oxygen. And then every time the person exhales, they just scrub out the CO2 and cycle the oxygen back in. So there are no bubbles produced. But what that means is that they're also getting hyperbaric oxygen. Because the deeper down they go, the higher the pressure of the oxygen they're breathing. So at 33 feet, that's two atmospheres of oxygen. And at 66 feet, uh, that's three atmospheres of oxygen. Um, and so uh, the Navy did a lot of research on hyperbaric oxygen, and one of the pioneers in this area was C.J. Lambertson, who was a young uh, <coughs> second lieutenant uh, medical doctor who was in the uh, Navy back in World War II, and when they started doing work on trying to uh, do uh, you know, breathing oxygen for diving to do uh, stealthy operations. But uh, this is a study he did uh, back in the 50s, looking here at one, breathing an atmosphere of air and three and a half atmospheres of oxygen. And what I can show you, this is the uh, hemoglobin saturation in the internal jugular, which is you know, low at breathing air, but it's almost at arterial levels breathing oxygen. Again, another example that when you're breathing this much oxygen, you're basically meeting all your body's needs for oxygen just off the, uh, the blood, uh, rather the oxygen dissolved in plasma. And what that does is, if you can imagine, uh, this is a graph here from Londal et al. And imagine you're looking at capillaries end on, where the blue circles here are the capillary, and then this other circle is the sort of the diffusion distance for the oxygen. You can see if you're breathing air, you might diffuse the oxygen for a certain distance from the capillaries. But at three atmospheres absolute, you, your diffusion distance gradually increases, which would allow you to, uh, to deal with uh, ischemia in, the, in those areas. And I'd like to show you what that looks like clinically. Um, this is a picture of someone who had had head and neck cancer and then uh, recurred and had to have an operation to remove the recurrence. And during the operation, what you can see is that uh, she ended up with a very limited blood supply to her tongue. And you can see that end of the tongue is very dusky and dark and looks like it may become necrotic. So this is a picture of the tongue just before going into the hyperbaric chamber. And then this is that tongue right after she came out. And so as you can see, there's certainly uh, been a significant brightening of that uh, tongue while she's been in the hyperbaric chamber.
So all this is just to summarize that the, the main HBO effect is that it greatly increases the amount of oxygen dissolved in plasma, which then increases the oxygen content of blood-reaching tissues, and it's definitely effective at reducing hypoxia. But you might wonder, uh, you know, you can't have somebody live in a hyperbaric chamber. The, the treatments we give are maybe an hour and a half, two hours long. So what about the other 22 hours in the day uh, when they're not in the hyperbaric chamber? You're not relieving the ischemia then. So is that the only thing that hyperbaric oxygen is doing? And, and this has also came up in, in investigations in decompression sickness. So in decompression sickness, you have bubbles in the body. These bubbles will cause a blockage, which might you know, lead to a, let's say if it hit the spinal cord, people appear with paralysis. And if you give people hyperbaric oxygen, that reduces the size of the bubble and relieves the paralysis. But it's also been noted that if you give hyperbaric oxygen a couple of days after, it still seems to work. And people were wondering, well, how could that be? I mean, the bubbles don't stick around that long. Why is hyperbaric ha oxygen having any effect when uh, you know, the bubbles have probably been are, are long gone? And so what if you gave hyperbaric oxygen to somebody who doesn't have any, <laughs> who's normal, who doesn't have uh, ischemia or anything like that? What if you used hyperoxia to precondition pre people for exposure to other environments? So for example, um, it's been shown now that you can give hyperbaric oxygen before um, <clears throat> interventions that would ca cause ischemia, like, let's say, a simulated stroke. If you give that hyperbaric oxygen beforehand, you'll improve the outcomes of that subsequent hyper ischemic exposure. So that there seems to be some biochemical effects going on. And... Um, so that we've seen that uh, animals exposed to hyperbaric oxygen prior to hypoxia exposure, spinal cord injury, and heart ischemia do better than unexposed animals. Um, and so it's particularly uh, remarkable that, uh, but you can give hyperoxia to improve performance in hypoxia. So, uh, but that does definitely seem to be the case, at least in these animal studies. And one of the more interesting things, there's now been three uh, trials on this, that hyperbaric oxygen has been studied given prior to cardiac bypass surgery and showing improved outcomes, both neurocognitive outcomes and, uh, uh, and uh, inflammatory outcomes in the hyperbaric oxygen preconditioned group. So in, this, in these studies, they're giving people hyperbaric oxygen before the cardiopulmonary bypass. They get anywhere from three to five treatments beforehand. Uh, one group will not get the hyperbaric oxygen, another group will, and then they look at outcomes afterwards. And there's this uh, improvement in outcomes in the people who uh, received the hyperbaric oxygen beforehand. Again, suggesting that there's some other biochemical effects going on aside from just the you know, uh, increase in uh, oxygen that's occurring in the plasma. And so one of these uh, factors that has been studied is uh, so-called uh, hypo hypoxia-inducible factor alpha, F1-alpha which uh, has been shown to be increased by uh, hyperoxia. This is a study by Gu in rats. And what he, this is a preconditioning study where they gave uh, rats hyperbaric oxygen prior to an experimental stroke. And then they had a control group. And the rats who got the hyperbaric oxygen preconditioning had smaller strokes and, and did better. But they also had here higher levels of uh, HIF-1-alpha. And uh, this will 
become important later on because HIF1-alpha seems to be an important factor um, in certain kinds of uh, inflammation. So, the uh, sort of in summary, hyperoxia seems to improve also, I'm sorry, hyperoxia can improve outcomes in certain inflammatory conditions as well. So, for example, in animal studies, hyperbaric oxygen improves outcomes in acute pancreatitis and lab-induced uh, inflammation. If you, for example, give an irritant like carrageenan, put that in the, uh, a paw of a rat and give hyperbaric oxygen, that improves the inflammation compared to animals who don't have that. Same thing with acute pancreatitis. In ischemic wounds, uh, hyperbaric oxygen reduces neutrophil infiltration, inflammation, and cell apoptosis. And this is something that's been shown in uh, different wound care studies. And then also hyperbaric oxygen has effects on neutrophil adhesion, nitric oxide pathways, and uh, some cytokines. Um, and the nitric oxide pathways are particularly important uh, because of one um, uh, thing that I'm going to show you next is that um, one thing that hyperbaric oxygen does, which seems to be through its effects on nitric oxide, is it increases the release of stem progenitor cells from the bone marrow. And uh, this is a study from Steve Tom. And what he did is he just measured, he took blood from people after their hyperbaric treatment. So this is after their first treatment, after their 10th treatment, after their 20, 20th treatment, did flow cytometry and looked at the, uh, these stem progenitor cells in the uh, blood. And what he saw is that there was this consistent increase that didn't diminish over time after the hyperbaric treatments. And that seems to be a nitric oxide mediated event. So if we uh, kind of summarize this, and this is a little sort of uh, um, uh, graph that uh, Steve Tomlin put together that if with hyperbaric oxygen you're increasing oxygen levels in the cells it increased reactive oxygen species part of that in wounds you can see there's an elevation of different wound growth factors and it's mentioning the HIF1 alpha here uh, you get the stem progenitor cells are most mobilized from the bone marrow and there have been some studies to show that those cells do end up in wounds And then also this uh, effects on neutrophil uh, S-nitrosylation, which uh, what that does is that impairs temporarily neutrophil adhesion. There's lower uh, chemokine synthesis in monocytes. And then these changes in um, HIF1-alpha that I mentioned, this HO is hemoxygenase, which also we'll see later on, it could be important uh, for that case study we talked initially about with diminished inflammatory uh, responses. So even though we talk about hyperbaric oxygen as relieving hypoxia, and it definitely does that, there do seem to be these other biochemical effects. So can we think of a condition that involves both hypoxia and inflammation? And the answer is yes, ulcerative colitis involves both hypoxia and inflammation. So the gut lumen is very hypoxic. And also, a lot of the times, the intestinal mucosa is hypoxic because it's in contact with the lumen all the time. And uh, there's also some sort of, also a lot of uh, uh, distinguishing between self and non-self going on in the gut. So there's also some uh, low-level inflammation going on there. But in ulcerative colitis, there's a lot of uh, inflammation, injury to the, uh, the intestinal mucosa, hypoxia that uh, develops, and it's thought that things like HIF-1-alpha and hemoxygenase 
are important factors in improving outcomes in ulcerative colitis. That if you can maintain HIF-1-alpha levels, that that seems to be related to better outcomes in ulcerative colitis. So both inflammation and hypoxia are very, very important in ulcerative colitis, uh, suggesting that, well, maybe there might be a reason to think about hyperbaric oxygen. Also, the treatment for severe ulcerative colitis fails is, is, uh, flares rather, is inadequate. About a quarter of people uh, of ulcerative colitis patients will require hospitalization for their flares. Uh, so a significant percentage of them are not going to respond to IV steroids. There are good second-line therapies um, like infliximab and cyclosporin. Uh, colectomy isn't such a great therapy. But they're associated with significant cost, adverse events, and uh, post-operative mortality and morbidity. So there's a need for novel therapeutic strategies. So uh, for many years, uh, I would see Corey Siegel in the hall. And we'd always go, you know, we should do a trial on this. You know, and, uh, and this went on for a while. We keep going, yeah, we've got to do a trial on this. So we've got to look at hyperbaric oxygen ulcerative colitis. This is just something we just have to do. And uh, we kept talking about it. And then uh, and, uh, Parambir uh, Dulai came along. I don't know if you uh, know Parambir, but he was a resident here. And he got uh, a medicine resident. He was chief resident also for a time. And uh, he got very interested in this uh, idea. And Corey was able. Uh, and, to secure funding from the Broad Foundation to actually start a trial, to see if we could do a trial that would look at the effect of hyperbaric oxygen on ulcerative uh, colitis. And uh, Parambir is not here anymore. Now he's at uh, UCSD as a gastroenterology fellow, but um, the, the trial uh, lives on. So uh, the idea was, could hyperbaric oxygen have a role in the treatment of moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. And so this hypoxia that occurs in ulcerative colitis really damages the epithelial uh, barrier in the intestine. There uh, seems to be an aberrant host response to gut flora and uh, increase, well, this is T helper cell 17, but there's also just in a lot of inflammation going on uh, in the colon. And you could make some hypotheses that maybe um, changes with uh, VEGF and cytokines and nitric oxide that we've seen that hyperbaric oxygen has done, that might potentially be beneficial. It's also the relief of hypo hypoxia and also upregulating perhaps this HIF, the HIF-1-alpha and the hemoxygenase, that might be a potential uh, pathway. And then also perhaps hyperbaric oxygen is altering the microbiome. So the gut lumen is hypoxic most of the time. You're probably making it a little hyperoxic while they're in the chamber. And are you changing the microbiome over time? That's a possibility as well. So uh, we were able to get this trial started. And the aim was to evaluate adding hyperbaric oxygen to the treatment of ulcerative colitis patients admitted for moderate severe flares. So that was one of the people. The case that I showed you at the beginning was one of the patients that was enrolled in this study. So that's how that person presented. So the primary outcome was clinical remission in ulcerative colitis patients, hospitalized for moderately severe uh, flares, a Mayo score greater than six. The Mayo score is uh, a score that rates severity of ulcerative colitis. It looks at four things, which is stool frequency, rectal bleeding, uh, endoscopic appearance, and the physician's assessment of the uh, patient's condition at the top score of 12 and an endoscopic subscore uh, less than, uh, greater than two. The scales go from zero to three.
Um, and then remission was a partial Mayo score. That's a score where you just take out the endoscopic part of it. And so that's a top score of nine, of less than two points with no individual subscore and seeding one point. And then our secondary outcomes were decrease in partial Mayo score more than two points, endoscopic remission, and progression to second Lyme therapy, either colectomy or biologic therapy. And so here's how our trial went. We had 25 patients screened, and some uh, had to be screened out for the reasons listed there. And we ended up with, uh, with 18 uh, patients. So they're randomized uh, and, uh, to either hyperbaric oxygen and steroids. We had 10 people in that group or sham hyperbaric air and steroids. And the sham condition is very uh, important that uh, you know, when people come to the hyperbaric chamber, they're going in the chamber, there are people there with them, they're in it for almost two hours. And so there's a real tendency to have a Hawthorne effect that people get better just by the fact that they're getting that much attention. And, uh, and this has been shown in uh, studies of uh, traumatic brain injury, there's been thoughts that Hyperbaric oxygen was good for traumatic brain injury. Um, and so they did a trial, and sure enough, hyperbaric oxygen was good for traumatic brain injury, but so was sham treatment. <laughs> so, so people both in the sham arm and the hyperbaric arm both improved very nicely. So it's very important in these studies to include a sham hyperbaric arm, which we did. And we here at Dartmouth, we have the ability to deliver the, uh, the sham treatment. The sham treatment is, uh, it provides a little bit of pressurization with air that creates the feeling in your ears and all the rest that you're in a hyperbaric treatment. People can't tell the difference between that and uh, getting hyperbaric oxygen. And then we had uh, daily hyperbaric oxygen, uh, ten, up to 10 sessions at 2.4 atmospheres absolute for 90 minutes, and then a flexible sigmoidoscopy at the end. Um, and here are the... Uh, the makeup of our groups, and I just want to highlight some areas there. So they were fairly well matched. Uh, there were no significant differences between the groups, um, although you know some slight differences that say a, a tendency for CRP to be higher in the HBO group, maybe a slightly higher Mayo score in the sham group. <coughs> but in general, the groups were uh, well, well matched. And so what do we see? Well, I'm going to show you the results that uh, Perrin Beer had presented at the uh, European Crohn's and Colitis Organization meeting uh, just a couple of months ago. And, um, and this uh, trial was uh, involved many people. Uh, I mentioned uh, Perrin Beer and Corey, but it was also a multi-center trial. It uh, took place at the Mayo Clinic and also at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. But I have to mention the majority of the patients were treated here. So uh, this is a little Kapmanmeyer plot of uh, looking at uh, colectomy. So we could see the blue line is the HBO group, the sham is the red line, and uh, we had three colectomies in the sham group, no colectomies in the, uh, in the HBO group. Partial Mayo scores, uh, again this is looking at day uh, within the study, this is the partial Mayo score, remember the maximum that you can have is nine. Um, and there was a definite uh, decrease in Mayo score and a group time interaction suggesting that the hyperbaric group changed uh, in, uh, differently than the sham group did. Although I have to be honest here that uh, for the people who were 
um, had colectomies, I just continued with their, their partial male score before colectomy. And here are the treatment outcomes. And uh, look at day five, clinical remission, 50% uh, in the HBO group, 0% in sham. Day 10, clinical remission, 50% HBO, 0% in sham. Clinical response, 80-25. Endoscopic remission, uh, progression to in -line, uh, second line therapy, either biologics or colectomy. Again, much higher in the sham group. And in hospital colectomy, we had no, no uh, colectomies in the HBO group, but uh, three in the sham group, uh, which is you know, not significant, it's, but still uh, uh, an important trend. So basically, our conclusion that HBO given as an adjunct to intravenous steroids for ulcerative colitis in patients hospitalized for moderately severe flares results in higher rates of response and remission compared to steroids alone and a reduction in the need for progression to biologics or colectomy during hospitalization. I have to say this is a small trial, small numbers, um, but the Broad Foundation has been excited about the results, and, uh, and Corey was able to secure some further funding, so we will be starting on a dose-finding study to look at the appropriate dose of hyperbaric oxygen to use, and then use that to progress to a larger multicenter phase three type uh, trial. And we definitely want to acknowledge the support, acknowledge the support from the foundation from clinical research in IBD and the Broad Medical Foundation at the Crohn's and Colitis uh, Foundation. So that's just some uh, one new emerging uh, indication that uh, I feel fortunate we've been part of developing. So just to change uh, sh uh, focus for a moment here, let's talk about another case. And this is a 65-year-old man with a history of diabetes, coronary artery disease, and congestive heart failure who presented to an outside ENT physician for sudden, sudden hearing loss in his left ear that occurred three days previously. MRI showed no relevant pathology. He received an intratympanic steroid injection. Seven days later, he was reevaluated and had not improved, hadn't regained any hearing. He had another injection and developed dizziness and vertigo after that injection, ended up getting hospitalized for that, and then five days after his second injection, he still has had no improvement in his hearing. So uh, he's had a sudden loss of hearing in his left ear. Uh, steroids have not helped. So would hyperbaric oxygen uh, be a uh, reasonable additional treatment? And so what the case is, uh, what this is a case of is idiopathic sudden sensory neural hearing loss. Um, and as the name implies, nobody really knows what causes this. Um, it's about, affects about five to 20 per 100,000 per population. So it's not a very common condition. So no one hyperbaric center is gonna see a lot of these uh, people. And um, the most frequently used criterion to diagnose it is that you have a decrease of 30 decibels affecting at least three con uh, consecutive frequency. This particular gentleman uh, had essentially no hearing in his left ear. He went from having, uh, some mild hearing loss to essentially being deaf in his left ear. And uh, many causes have been proposed for this, and the two most common are a circulatory disturbance and viral infection. And uh, circulatory disturbance, you can think, well, that that's might, might be useful for hyperbaric oxygen if, there is, if it's not getting blood supply to the cochlea. Perhaps getting hyperbaric oxygen in would, would help to uh, restore the cochlea. 
And then the, uh, and as far as viral infection, I don't know, but if there is some sort of inflammation that's persisting over time, perhaps a hyperbaric oxygen would help with that. But what I'd like to show you is uh, this uh, case is someone we just were currently treating at the moment. And um, this here is, uh, this is the audiogram. So this is frequency across the bottom here from low to high. And then this is uh, hearing threshold. So if somebody had normal hearing, they would be up here at zero. And then as, as they progress down here, they have worse and worse hearing. And then if there's no X, it means they couldn't hear anything at all. Um, so this is the person's uh, audiogram before he had idiopathic sudden hearing loss. And then this is his, uh, uh, his audiogram after he had the hearing loss. You can see he had a little bit of hearing at just these two lowest frequencies. Most of these, up until about the 23rd of March here, all these are just falling on top of each other down here. And it was at, only after about seven days of hyperbaric treatments that he started to recover his hearing, which has been continuing to progress over time. So at first, um, you know, he started then being able to hear something at some of these higher frequencies. And most recently, he just started, you know, being able to hear at 4,000. And he's had... Uh, an almost 40 dB increase in his hearing at some of these frequencies, which is a really a remarkable. Uh, so I find this fascinating. I, I really have no idea what, <laughs> what's going on. And uh, you know, why, I, I don't know why he got this, and I don't know what hyperbaric is, is doing to him. But um, it, you know, his hearing seems to be getting a lot better. Um, it, could it be a spontaneous recovery? I suppose that's possible. Um, that some people with idiopathic sensory neural hearing loss do recover spontaneously. But he didn't really recover until more than all, almost a month after his initial presentation, which is kind of rare for somebody to show a uh, recovery at that time. But anyway, a very, um, very interesting indication that just I find fascinating. So other emerging indications for hyperbaric oxygen? Uh, perianal Crohn's disease, so it's another uh, form of inflammatory bowel disease. We don't have a trial in this area, which we would love to have. We've treated a few patients with perianal Crohn's, mixed results. We've had some people who responded very well, other people who did not seem to respond very well. But there's an interest in a lot of centers at having a trial, and if we could get a multi-center trial together, we'd love to do that. Uh, chronic anal fissures, this is something I uh, had not known about, but actually the pathology in chronic anal fissures is hypoxia. The reason why these fissures won't heal is because the tissue is hypoxic. And uh, so we ended up getting a patient referred for a chronic anal fissure and did very well. It uh, healed up after uh, treatment with uh, hyperbaric oxygen. Pyoderma gangrenosum, uh, which is an inflammatory skin condition, often related to ulcerative colitis. And uh, we've had a couple of cases of this. We had one who had an excellent response, uh, someone who had been, you know, had everything, tried everything. Uh, and we were able to heal it with the hyperbaric oxygen. Another patient, uh, not, not the greatest response. Raynaud's-related ulcers, again, that makes some sense. With Raynaud's, you're going to have hypoxia uh, in the ulcer. And uh, we've had a couple of people with uh, systemic sclerosis who had ulcers, uh, and we, which we were able to heal with hyperbaric oxygen. Calciphylaxis. Uh, this is a rare condition, skin condition, mainly in people with uh, really end-stage renal disease. It's due to calcium deposition in the arterioles and um, very painful skin lesions. 
uh, that break down and are really hard to heal because the, the blood vessels have basically, um, uh, well, they're not, they clotted off. So mixed picture with this, a lot of times by the time we get to people, they're so sick that I'm, I'm not sure that hyperbaric oxygen is going to do anything for them, but we have had a, you know, an occasional good outcome in uh, calciphylaxis. It makes some sense physiologically because a hypoxia is the major factor. Central retinal artery occlusion, um, we've had one case <laughs> who did uh, improve. It was actually uh, kind of fun to watch that uh, the person had the central retinal artery occlusion. We got him about four hours after that, put him in the chamber, and while he was in the chamber, he started being able to see again out of that eye. So he was able to, uh, you know, be able to uh, get his, some of his vision back. The key factor with this, however, is what to do in between the hyperbaric treatments. So because obviously once you're out of the chamber, um, you know, you're going to get the occlusion back. And then another very important area is HBO as a radio sensitizer. So um, we happen to be located in the radiation oncology area. So we're just a few steps away from the radiation oncology suite. And the thing to realize is that radiation therapy works through oxygen. So it's, it, a hypoxic tissue is relatively resistant to radiation. Because what radiation does when it uh, hits tissue, it creates free radicals. These free radicals are stabilized in the, in the presence of oxygen, and it's those free radicals that do the damage. So sometimes it's good to think of radiation not so much as a physical uh, factor that's causing damage, but as a chemical uh, damage you know, by causing these, creating these free radicals. And you need oxygen to be present. And that's often why radiation is given in fractions, because each time it's given, uh, you know, the, hopefully there's a different populations of cells who have enough oxygen in them to respond to the radiation. So you could make the case that if you could give people hyperbaric oxygen before their radiation therapy treatment, you might be able to relieve that hypoxia and improve the outcomes. And uh, we actually did a, a small phase one trial in this uh, area. This is a, a paper that recently came out from uh, Alan Hartford uh, here. And uh, this was a phase one trial uh, in a locally advanced head and neck cancer, uh, where we took people to the chamber, gave them hyperbaric oxygen, and rapidly gave them uh, radiation therapy afterwards. This is mainly a feasibility study, so we showed that it was possible to do. We were able to treat most people within five minutes after, well, about six minutes after leaving the chamber. And uh, we would love to advance on this to, uh, to go into a phase two uh, trial. Alan is also currently doing a trial using uh, hyperbaric oxygen as a radio sensitizer in people with isolated brain metastases. So that's a trial we currently have uh, ongoing. Uh, and uh, we just uh, treated a patient on that um, protocol the other day. Uh, I would want to leave uh, hyperbaric oxygen. We're talking about the approved indications, the non-emerging indications, things that we actually use, them f uh, use it for. One is air or gas embolism. Uh, in the medical setting, this usually has to do with people who are having some sort of catheter-based procedure and end up with bubbles that lodge in their uh, brain or uh, someplace else. We have never had a patient, so either we're doing a fabulous job here <laughs> Or we maybe, maybe don't realize that there's actually a treatment for these people. So if somebody does get a bubble in their brain or a spinal cord from a, uh, uh, 
a uh, invasive procedure, there is something that can be done about it. Carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, what the studies seem to show is that hyperbaric oxygen does tend to reduce the later neurocognitive sequelae of carbon monoxide poisoning. We have not treated that many people with carbon monoxide poisoning. I think mainly because we don't, uh, we're not a 24-7 service, and also we uh, currently don't have the ability to ventilate people in the chamber. Um, and so, uh, so often people who are really, really sick with carbon monoxide poisoning are on a ventilator and then we can't um, handle that. Then there's clostridial myositis and myonecrosis, which I would also uh, link in with this one here, necrotizing soft tissue infections. We have had a couple of cases of this with uh, good outcomes. The problem is there's you know, no randomized controlled trials about hyperbaric oxygen in these infections, but there likely never will be. So um, it's, uh, but it does make sense at least for these anaerobic uh, infections. Crush injury, compartment syndromes, and other acute traumatic ischemias, uh, usually it's after a car accident or things like that. We've never seen a case, so uh, we've never been referred anybody for a crush injury. <coughs> Decompression sickness, as you know, the Upper Valley is not a big diving area, <laughs> so, but we have had one case, and we had a, a one case of decompression sickness uh, with somebody who was diving in Lake Champlain, and uh, we happened to be the nearest uh, chamber. Arterial insufficiencies, uh, that's like an uh, example would be the central retinal artery occlusion. So uh, we have uh, had a case of that. Uh, enhancement of healing and selective problem wounds. And the usual wound that we're talking about here are diabetic foot wounds. And I'll talk about that on the next slide. We do get some diabetic foot wounds for treatment with hyperbaric oxygen. And, uh, and I'll talk about that more later. Severe anemia. Uh, we did have a case, uh, a Jehovah's Witness with a hemoglobin of three. And uh, she made it out of the hospital alive. It was, uh, it was uh, remarkable. So we were actually able to sustain her until she got her uh, hemoglobin up to a more uh, livable level. Intracranial abscess, uh, never had a case. Necrotizing soft tissue infection, we already talked about that. Refractory osteomyelitis, again, this is, not, this is only osteomyelitis that doesn't respond to uh, you know, six weeks of intravenous antibiotics. So if somebody has a chronic osteomyelitis, that, that's somewhere, someplace where uh, hyperbaric oxygen is used as an adjunct. Uh, we did have one, uh, a 17-year-old girl had a femoral infection that was uh, persistent and uh, did well with hyperbaric oxygen, subsequently went on to become a nurse. Delayed radiation injury, this is the bulk of what we do in our program uh, clinically. Because uh, radiation injury is really good, radiation rather, is very good for getting rid of cancer but also it leaves a tissue that's somewhat hypoxic and hypo hypocellular. And some people will go on to develop a complication of cause of that, a wound that won't heal. If they had had neck cancer, they may develop breakdown of their jaw. If they had radiation for their prostate, they might develop radiation cystitis or they might develop radiation proctitis. So these various forms of radiation injury are the bulk of what we see and it does uh, very, very well for that. Um, Compromised grafts and flaps, and this is kind of, as you might imagine, sort of the application of the uh, uh, hypoxia-relieving effects of hyperbaric oxygen. And again, the earlier they are seen, the better off things uh, work out. We actually did publish a case series of uh, above-the-knee amputations uh, 
uh, from here, uh, people who had had diabetics with above-the-knee amputations, which were who were, would have progressed to hip disarticulation, but we were able to forestall that by giving them hyperbaric oxygen and healing their wounds. Acute thermal burn injury, uh, never really, haven't really had anybody uh, with that. And then idiopathic sudden sensory neural hearing loss, which we, uh, we just talked about. A couple uh, notes about approved indications. Chronic arterial ulcers are usually not covered, and that's, so those are people with peripheral vascular disease that have an ulcer on their toe and have really low oxygen levels. Um, it's not that some people might, might benefit, but uh, it's really hard to know who would benefit and who won't. Insurance will not cover uh, people who have uh, you know, chronic arterial ulcers, so we don't usually see many of those. And then diabetic foot ulcers, the current guidelines are that they need to be Wagner grade three or greater and to show no improvement over 30 days despite optimal wound care. So it's a fairly small number of people who would be referred to hyperbar for hyperbaric oxygen for their diabetic foot ulcer. It's not anybody with an ulcer. It's only those people who have ulcers that are not, not healing despite um, usual care. So uh, use of HBO. Uh, our usual treatments are at 2 to 2.4 atmospheres absolute, that's ATA, for 90 minutes. And a treatment course is usually 10 to 40 treatments. So 10 might be uh, you know, a short course for a compromised flap, and 40 is usually what we give for people who have uh, a radiation injury because uh, it takes a while for the uh, hyperbaric oxygen to work in those particular uh, conditions. The complications uh, include claustrophobia, um, oxygen seizures, which are rare. We've never actually had an oxygen seizure in our program, knock on wood. And then difficulty, difficulty equalizing pressure in the ears. So uh, that, that feeling is the same feeling you get when you're coming in for a landing in an airplane. And when you're coming in for a landing in an airplane, the pressure around you is going up. You know, you don't really feel the pressure change, but you do feel it in your ears. It's the same thing for people in the hyperbaric chamber. They need to be able to swallow and move their jaw and get rid of that feeling. And then if they, if they can't, they end up with what's called barotrauma, and sometimes we have to put ear tubes or pressure, pressure equalization tubes in. Um, that happens about 15% of the time. So I want to show you what an oxygen seizure uh, looks like. So again, uh, we're going to the Navy here. Uh, this is a video. The narrator says it's from the 40s. I think it's from the 50s. But anyway, these people must be, they're in a hyperbaric chamber, probably at around four or five atmospheres. And they're going to put an uh, oxygen mask on this person. So this person's going to get a fairly high level of oxygen. And then we'll see what happens. Um, they describe it as being incredibly painful. I don't know about that's true, but it certainly doesn't look like a whole lot of fun. Don't do this at home. <laughs> don't do this at home. This 1940s film from the US Navy shows the effects of breathing oxygen under pressure. As more oxygen is forced into the bloodstream, it quickly becomes toxic. The effects are debilitating and incredibly painful, and eventually, though not in this case, fatal. So at death, where the gas has to be under pressure, the only way to stop the oxygen becoming toxic is to reduce the amount of it we breathe. 
So uh, the reason they were doing these studies, you might want, is uh, uh, when we talked about breathing the oxygen as far as the divers breathing oxygen, 100% oxygen, if they dove down too deep, they would get seizures like this and, and die. So what happened is that early in the program, they were losing divers who would dive too deep, get oxygen uh, seizures, and then uh, drown. So uh, we don't, we haven't had a seizure in our program. That's because we don't usually use oxygen levels as high as this, but it still can happen. Uh, we do a couple of things to prevent that. Uh, one is that we give people air breaks. So we don't, uh, if someone's in the chamber at 2.4 atmospheres, about halfway through, we'll have them breathe air for about 10 minutes, and that really helps to uh, reduce the uh, oxygen stress on the, uh, on the brain. Uh, and also we tend to gradually increase the, uh, when, we, when we start people, we don't start them right at the uh, highest oxygen level, we gradually increase them, which gives them a chance to acclimatize. So, uh, are there contraindications to each HBO or current doxorubicin use? It's thought to potentiate the uh, uh, adverse cardi effects, uh, cardiovascular effects of that. History of bleomycin use, I think this is, uh, um, some old, a single old observation that maybe hasn't stood the test of time. Disulfiram use, antabuse, it's not used that much uh, anymore, but it is a superoxide dismutase inhibitor, so not a good uh, thing to be inhibiting when you're giving people that much oxygen. And then other untreated pneumothorax are other sealed air-filled space. So any sealed air-filled space in the hyperbaric chamber is going to expand and contract uh, during the compression and decompression of the chamber, so we have to make sure that those are all vented. Relative contraindications are chronic sinusitis, uncontrolled seizures. We've treated a lot of people with controlled seizures, so we've had a lot of people with seizures disorders as long as they're taking their meds. Emphysema with CO2 retention, because you can, of course, shut off their oxygen, uh, shut off their dried for breathing. Uh, history of thoracic surgery with remaining air-filled spaces. So we've had a lot of people who've had thoracic surgery. It's just they, we have to make sure they don't have uh, you know, any air in there. Surgery for otosclerosis. History of optic neuritis. Again, I think that's one of those historical things. And poor cardiac function. Um, what happens in the, in the chamber is that the high levels of oxygen will slightly increase uh, blood pressure. So when we measure blood pressure, people, if they come out, it's a little bit higher than it was when they went in. And if they ha are on the edge in terms of their cardiac function, there have been instances where someone has had uh, pulmonary edema while they're in the chamber. So if, that ha if we get a patient who has poor cardiac function, we just need to make sure we monitor them carefully, check their weights, and so that they're, make sure that they're stable the time that they're getting a hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So uh, just to summarize, so the main effect of hyperbaric oxygen therapy, dissolve a large amount of oxygen in the blood, and I think that's what the studies of Borma showed. But hyperbaric oxygen also has biochemical effects on nitric oxide pathways, neutrophil adhesion, antioxidant enzymes, and some inflammatory pathways. So it's also, think of it as a, as a drug. Traditional uses have included decompression sickness, radiation injury, and diabetic foot wounds. But it may also be useful in other conditions where both hypoxia and inflammation are uh, important uh, considerations. And I just wanted to show you our glamour shot from the hyperbaric program. And uh, it's uh, Judy Patak, who is here today, and uh, Susan Reitz, and me, and uh, we are smiling at a patient getting treated. So thank you very much. I'd be happy to, uh, to take any questions.
highlights if you'd like. Jay, thank you. That was great. Comments and questions? Jay, uh, relevant to your uh, comments about uh, pre-bypass surgery, you know, sort of preemptive prophylaxis, if you will, is there any data that in divers who are going to do very deep dives at higher risk for decompression sickness that HBO prior to the dive could help prophylax them? Uh, I don't know of that. Yeah, I don't know if that's been tried. Yeah, just a comment, you know, this raises questions in my mind about patients with GI graft versus disease. Maybe you and I should have a chat. Oh, yeah, that, that would be a really fascinating application. I haven't seen any literature on that, but, I mean, uh, we should just see if there have been any animal studies. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, that would be a very interesting application. You have more radicals. You have more radicals. <laughs> yeah, you have more radicals, and uh, so uh, it's it seems to be somewhat complex, in the sense you would think that um, you think it would be a bad thing, right, to be putting you know that many radicals in. But also, it seems to be it's the secondary effects that those radicals are also serving as messengers and signaling molecules that then create these other downstream effects. So, um, and I think also when you're treating like, um, if you're treating acute ischemia, like there's a, probably an early period with hy where hyperbaric oxygen would be helpful, but then there may be a period after time where hyperbaric oxygen might be harmful. You know, if you're thinking from a, you know, reactive oxygen species, putting that into an area that's been, you know, that hasn't been perfused. But that's still an area that needs more work. And, uh, I was thinking in, uh, you do a lot of, uh, Related transplantation. I wonder if pre-treating the donor and/or the recipient would be helpful because you know when, and when you do a living-related transplant, it's the ischemia, part partly the ischemia that leads to the immunologic reaction down the line. So if you get, you know, you have to take the kidney out of the yeah. out of the donor with a with a scope, and there's a certain warm ischemia time, and then the kidney gets a little ATN, and then you put it in and. Um, uh, into the recipient for some warm ischemia time, but I wonder if you could, if you pre-treated it. If you don't get ATM the kidney, then there's some evidence that you don't get the immunologic reaction and the long-term graft survival better. Uh, that's a great idea. That's really super. Um, I, I, I haven't seen any literature on that, but that would be a great, I mean, the whole preconditioning thing I just find fascinating. I would love to know what's going on there. Uh, so uh, that's, that's a great suggestion. Uh, we should look in the literature. And I should note, we also have an animal hyperbaric chamber up in the lab. So for, you know, so, so for pre-studies, pilot studies, we do have a small chamber that can be used for you know, rodents and small, small swine if it, you know, to test out some of these ideas. Yeah. So um, I don't have good data on that. Um, it, one one thing that hyperbaric oxygen does is it promotes angiogenesis in the uh, in the foot wound, right? So then people go, well, that's not good. I don't want 
angiogenesis in the retina. Uh, but there haven't, you know, there have been a lot of people with diabetic foot wounds treated with hyperbaric oxygen, and to date there haven't been reports of their retinopathy getting worse. But on the other hand, I don't know that that's being followed closely either. So, um, but you could make the case that it might either, and then you could also make a case it might improve things, right? So, um, again, that's a great question, but I really don't know. Hey, what are the charges for hyperbaric treatment? Oh, well, they're all over the map. <laughs> so, um, you know, I guess it's like, uh, well, it would be like four to $500 per treatment. So, um, so that's, you know, so it, uh, it can add up. You know, that's why it's used mainly for those indications where it's really the right choice. On a practical note, how do people access the consult with you to figure out if it's going to be a good thing for that patient? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so you can do it through EDH, uh, or you can also just send an email or call the hyperbaric uh, center. It's uh, uh, 56489. And, uh, and then if we're not there, just leave a message and we'll get back to you. Well, this is great. Jay, thank you so much. Thank you. 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 Thank